Hey everyone, welcome back to Daily Gospel Exegesis. As always, our goal on this podcast is to really dive into scripture to help you understand the literal sense of scripture. We're doing a verse-by-verse exegesis from a Catholic perspective. We have quite a challenging reading today and one that has been taken in different ways. So let's jump into the text. It's Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 28. This is what you will hear at today's Mass. Jesus said to his disciples, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you must realize that she will soon be laid desolate. Then those in Judea must escape to the mountains, those inside the city must leave it, and those in country districts must not take refuge in it. For this is the time of vengeance, when all that scripture says must be fulfilled." Alas for those with child or with babies at the breast when those days come, for great misery will descend on the land and wrath on this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive to every pagan country, and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the pagans until the age of the pagans is completely over. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars on earth nations in agony, bewildered by the clamour of the ocean and its waves, men dying of fear as they await what menaces the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand erect, hold your heads high, because your liberation is near at hand. So, a text which many of you would have heard before, and you've probably heard some interesting interpretations of this passage. Let's start by thinking about the context. Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem. He's in the last week of his life. He's now teaching in the temple. Just prior to this, uh, he's been predicting the destruction of the temple and the events leading up to it. And I really recommend listening to the episodes from the last couple of days before this one, because... Jesus here is doing an extended sermon about the destruction of the temple, and this is the third episode in that sermon, so it all goes together as one unit. Remember, he's speaking primarily here to people who are already his followers. What he's now going to do today is tell them the things that will come immediately before the destruction of the temple, so the things that will happen just before the temple is destroyed. To understand this passage today, we need to have a look at the Greek word for coming. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you would have heard me talk about this before. So coming in Greek is parousia, and it basically means presence, but it can mean appearing or visitation. It's used quite a bit in the New Testament, and it's also used a lot of interesting ways in Greek literature at the time. And basically, it seems to describe the visitation of a king returning to a kingdom which he's previously conquered. So it has this image of a king returning to check on his kingdom. The Bible uses it in a similar way for Jesus. It has this depiction of Jesus going away for a while from his kingdom on earth and then coming back to earth to check on it. But it's used in two different ways. It's used in for his middle coming, which occurs in 70 AD. That was certainly one coming of Jesus. And also for his second coming, the same Greek word is used. And in a sense, they're continuations of each other. In both cases, Jesus is coming to earth to check on his kingdom. But it's not always easy to work out which one is being talked about at a given time. And so with this passage we're looking at today, it's certainly talking about the coming of Jesus. But scholars are divided. Is it talking about the, mid- the middle coming of Jesus in AD 70? 
or is it talking about the second coming? And as a Catholic, you're free to accept whichever interpretation makes the most sense to you. I think that the evidence points towards this one being about 70 AD. All of the things that Jesus describes here do seem to have a pretty clear fulfillment in 70 AD. And also, I think there's one obvious reason why we as exegetes should take this to be primarily talking about 70 AD. Just after this sermon in verse 32, Jesus says, this generation shall not pass away until all has taken place. So that would strongly imply that everything he says in this sermon is going to take place in the lifetime of the generation that's listening to him. So his immediate audience would experience all of these things in the lead up to 70 AD. We're starting at verse 20. It says, this is Jesus speaking. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now, Jesus here is sort of seeing these things happen in his mind's eye. He's prophesying them in advance. We know from history that this literally happened. The Romans attacked the city in 70 AD and they surrounded Jerusalem. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus describes this final phase of the war when the Romans get so fed up with Jerusalem that they surround it. Jesus describes this elsewhere as being like the days of Noah, when people in the city are oblivious, they think that they're fine until the very last moment and they're all completely destroyed because the Jews have this idea that as long as they're in Jerusalem, they're safe. They have nothing to worry about. So the the final attack by the Romans, where they overtook the city and destroyed the temple, it was actually unexpected by most people, even though there had been warning signs. Jesus says, you must realize that she will soon be laid desolate. Or we can translate this as, know that its desolation has come near. Now, desolation often has a very technical meaning, and it can mean destruction by pagans. Certainly, the temple has had several desolations. When the Babylonians destroyed the temple, that was a desolation. And then later in the time of the Maccabees, there were some other desolations by the Greeks. So here, Jesus is talking about another destruction by pagans, the desolation by the Romans. So his audience would have thought of those earlier desolations. Jesus here says to his disciples that when they see that Jerusalem is surrounded by the Romans... They need to know that the desolation is about to happen. So, as he's going to say to them, when they see the armies, they need to get out of the city as quick as possible. This is Jesus giving them practical advice. He's saying, I know what's coming. And when you see the armies coming, you need to get out of the city as soon as possible. You don't want to be there when the armies arrive. Now, in chapter 19, Jesus has already talked about this. Jesus has said more about what the Roman army will actually do to Jerusalem. So, remember in chapter 19... He said that the Romans will erect palisades, they'll kill children in the city, and they'll burn the temple. Jesus has already said all these things. Verse 21, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his followers here. So he's saying, when you see the Romans surrounding the city, flee to the mountains, get out of Judea completely, get out of that part of Israel. They have to leave without delay. Their time is short. That would actually go against the basic Jewish instinct because the Jewish instinct was to stay within Jerusalem. They all thought God will protect us if we stay in Jerusalem. Jesus tells his disciples in advance, don't do that. Get out of the city. And this is what he says. Let those in the city leave it and those in the country districts must not take refuge in it. So he's saying to them repeatedly, don't go to Jerusalem. When you see that Roman army is coming, don't go to Jerusalem. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus even says about this same event, he says, when you see the armies, 
don't pack anything, just leave, just get out of there. Don't go back into the house, just get out of there straight away. Now, there's some interesting facts from history which help shed light on this. We know from history that in 70 AD, when the Romans attacked the city, that the Christians, in fact, did listen to Jesus' advice. They fled. They fled to a place called Pella in the Decapolis. If you look at a map, you can see that Pella is a long way from Jerusalem. So the Christians got out of there and they went to Pella, where there was sort of a stronghold that they could hide out in for a few months. And as a result, their lives were preserved. So when the Romans were seen around the city, most Jews thought to themselves, we'll be fine. We're in Jerusalem, we'll be protected. But the Christians, they knew better because Jesus told them in advance that they need to get out of there, and they did. Historians tell us that by the time the Romans got into the city, not a single Christian was there. They were all gone. Had the Christians waited any longer to escape than what they did, they probably would have been tortured and killed by the Romans if they had attempted to leave later. And we know from history that Jews, uh, once the Romans got into the city, once Jews tried to leave then, they were killed by the Romans. It was impossible to leave once the siege started. So you needed to get out early. And that's exactly what the Christians do. Eusebius, the historian, records that Christians fled en masse because of the prophecy of Jesus. And we think the year they fled was probably 68 AD. That's when the Roman army started to come in full force. The actual Roman, uh, the destruction of the city took a while. It took a couple of years for the city to be completely destroyed. And the Christians, it seems, got out of there well before 70 AD. This is a quote from Eusebius. It's quite interesting. He says, The whole body of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by a divine revelation entrusted to men of approved piety there before the war, removed from the city, and dwelt at a certain town beyond the Jordan, called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had come thither from Jerusalem, the judgment of God at length overtook and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. That's a fascinating quote, isn't it? It says that all the Christians got out of the city as soon as they had, the judgment of God was poured out on Jerusalem. So by Jesus giving this command to his Christians, he's ensuring that his church will live on through the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's also ensuring that once the dust has settled, his church will be there to revive. In a sense, Jesus is saying this to his audience, he's saying this to his followers. The punishment that's coming is not coming for you. It's coming for those who have rejected me. In fact, if you think about the other passages when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple elsewhere in the Gospels, Remember, he compares these days to the days of Noah and the, de- the days of Noah and Lot. And in both of those cases, the whole idea is once the righteous are safe, God pours out his wrath. So God waits until the righteous Lot is safe. He waits until the righteous Noah is safe before he pours out his wrath in both cases. So if we apply that to 70 AD, it may be that God deliberately waited until all the Christians are out of the city in 68 AD before he began the final assault on Jerusalem. It's quite amazing when you think about how all of these elements came together. Jesus continues, verse 22, for this is the time of vengeance. This is the language of Jesus. This is not some other New Testament author. Jesus here says, this is the time of vengeance. Here, Jesus clearly teaches that the attack on Jerusalem was in fact a punishment by God against the Jewish people. That's very clear if you look at the Gospel of Luke all the way through. 
Why does God attack and destroy Jerusalem? It's because the Jewish leaders rejected God and his Messiah. Jesus specifically said that in chapter 19. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have liked to gather you together, but because you rejected your Messiah, your city is going to be made desolate. That's what he said in chapter 19. God has done this many times in the Old Testament. If you think it's strange that this idea that God uses the Romans to destroy Jerusalem, if that seems strange to you, if you study the Old Testament, it's pretty much what God does a lot. So he uses foreign armies as an instrument of justice against people who have rejected him. Sometimes he does that against Gentile nations. For example, in the book of Joshua, he uses the Israelites against the uh, pagan nations. But sometimes he uses foreign armies to punish Israel. He does that a lot through the uh, Babylonians, particularly in the Old Testament and the Assyrians. Here, the Romans are doing the exact same thing. God uses the Romans to punish the Jewish people. In fact, this phrase, days of vengeance, that Jesus uses here, it's a very technical phrase. It's always used in the Old Testament to describe judgment that falls upon Israel from God. If you look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, Hosea 9, verse 7, it's very similar themes. Jesus continues, he says, This is the time of vengeance when all that Scripture says must be fulfilled. This is remarkable. Jesus says the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. We often don't think about 70 AD. We don't talk about it enough. But Jesus says, he calls it here, all that scripture says must be fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. Now here he doesn't quote any specific prophecy. So maybe Jesus is saying that God works in patterns in general, as in the general way that he has destroyed Israel in the past, it'll be similar to how he does it in the future. And it could be that these former attacks on Jerusalem, like through the Babylonians in the Old Testament, maybe these are all foreshadowings pointing towards the final destruction of the temple that occurs in 70 AD. That's certainly possible. These are some elements that are in the Old Testament, which have already occurred, but that reoccur in 70 AD. Maybe Jesus has any of these in mind. So, for example, Jerusalem will be surrounded. That occurred in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 3, in an earlier destruction of the city. Enemies will come against the city. Jeremiah 34, verse 1 talks about that. And then this phrase, desolation of the city, is used in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 21, when the Babylonians destroy the city. This phrase, days of divine punishment, that's used in Hosea 9, verse 7. And also, people will be taken as captives. Jesus says that about 70 AD. It also occurs in 2 Kings 24, verse 14. So, all of these elements from Old Testament prophecies about Old Testament destructions of the city, they again reoccur in 70 AD. God works in patterns with Jerusalem. Jesus says in verse 23, Alas for those with child or with babies at the breast when those days come. What does this mean? Well, Jesus knows that on that day in the Jewish-Roman war, there's not going to be enough time to go back to the home to even retrieve a coat. So he feels particular pity for those whose flight is going to be slowed down. Here, he's emphasizing the need to get out quickly. He says, you need to get out quickly, and I know it's going to be very hard for those with child or with babies at the breast. It'll be slow for them. Jesus emphasizes this again when he speaks to the women of Jerusalem. When he's carrying his cross, he says to the women, weep not for yourselves, but for your children. He says that in Luke 23, verses 28 to 29. 
But of course, if history, if our historical records are correct, it seems that all Christians were able to get out of the city in time, even those that had young children. So this alas or woe here for people with children is probably talking about not non-Christians, the, the Jews that rejected Jesus. Jesus says, for great misery will descend on the land. Now, I bet this is actually a good translation the lectionary has. It uses the word land. Some other Bible translations use earth. So that would make the sentence, great misery will descend on the earth. And that, of course, leads people to think as they read this, they think it's talking about the second coming, as in the whole world is going to have a great misery. But actually what it says here in the Greek is land. And that probably refers to Israel, the country of Israel, and particularly Judea. The land, the land of Judea. This is a punishment on Judea specifically, not on the whole world. Jesus says there will be wrath on this people. He uses the word wrath. He says God is pouring out his wrath on the Jewish people for rejecting his Messiah. Jesus has said this several times already, and he specifically uses the word wrath here. It's very hard to escape this conclusion that Jesus is intending to teach that the destruction of Jerusalem was an act of wrath of God against the Jewish people. But I'd encourage you to study this text yourself if you're not convinced. Verse 24, Jesus says, They will fall by the edge of the sword. Now, notice here Jesus has changed to using the word they. He's not talking, he doesn't say you to his followers here. He doesn't want his followers to be in this group. He says to them, he says to his disciples here, they will fall by the sword, as in not you guys, but the others in the city. Now, in contrast, in Luke 19, when Jesus addresses Jerusalem as a whole, he says, these things will come upon you. But here he's speaking to his disciples and he says, the things will come upon them. So the the change in words here is significant and tells us who Jesus' audience is. He's speaking to Christians who he expects to not be involved in this punishment. He expects them to be out of the city by then. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among nations. And we know from history that's exactly what happened when Rome invaded the city. They destroyed many people and they led people captive to other parts of the Roman Empire. That would have been an incredibly miserable time for the Jews. They would have seen their temple destroyed and then themselves dispersed amongst the pagan nations. Jesus here uses language drawn from the Old Testament prophets to show how history will repeat itself in the destruction of the temple. And he's going to keep using Old Testament language here. He continues, he says, Jerusalem will be trampled down by the pagans until the age of the pagans is completely over. Now, another word here for pagans is Gentiles. And so here's another translation of this. Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What's Jesus talking about here? It could mean one of two things. What's this times of the Gentiles? He's teaching that uh, Jerusalem will be overrun by Gentiles. But how long is he talking about? What's the times of the Gentiles? It could be a short time period, as in when he says times of the Gentiles, maybe he means the time that the Roman army takes to completely destroy the city, and that was a few years. Maybe that's what he means. Some scholars think he has a long time in view here. Maybe the times of the Gentiles is still in force now. Maybe it means the time period when the church has taken the place of Israel. Maybe it means uh, the time period in which the Jews don't really have full control of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, which is still true today. They don't really have control of that. Uh, And there's different views, even amongst Catholics, about is Jesus here thinking of the long-term fate of Jerusalem, or is he just thinking of the short-term? We know that 
Jerusalem has never really been restored to the Jews, not properly. So you could consider this to be a long-term prophecy. Jesus says, uh, maybe Jesus means the times of the Gentiles, as in the time from 70 AD up until the second coming. Paul does say in Romans 11 verse 26 that many Jews will be converted to Christianity before the end of the world. I think the best way to think about this, though, is just the the time it takes for the city to be destroyed in 70 AD. And he's saying, basically saying to them, don't come back to the city until that time is complete. Stay in Pella for a couple of years until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled and the punishment on Jerusalem is finished. Then we get to the next section of this text, which begins a section which uses highly stylized Jewish apocalyptic language. This is when Jesus starts to talk about the moon turning to blood, the stars falling, the heavens will be shaken. Many people, when we hear this, we think it's talking about the second coming, as in a literal shaking of the heavens, as in the the universe is going to be destroyed and the, the moon's going to fall. And we literally think of, you know, cosmic phenomenon. It could be read that way, but it doesn't need to be read that way. And that's certainly not how Jews would have read it. Because if you look at the Old Testament, very similar language is used in other places in the Old Testament, and that is not referring to the end of the world. For the Jews, the destruction of the temple signaled the end of the first age. The Jews at the time believed that there were two great ages in the world. This sort of first age and then the messianic age. So when Jesus here talks about these cataclysmic signs, they probably would have understood that to mean that Jesus is predicting the end of the first age, which indeed occurred with the destruction of the of Jerusalem. So when Jesus has this language of then the end will come, the end is coming, they probably would have seen it as the end, as in the end of the covenant age, the end of the of the temple age. We find it hard to see that because we're so used to hearing interpretations that make it seem as though Jesus is talking about a cataclysmic second coming, but that's not how the first century audience would have understood this language. Let's get into this a bit. He first says, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. This is actually a common Jewish way of describing the falling and shaking of political powers and leaders. Sun and moon and stars were sometimes words that were used to describe figures, figures of authority on earth. It was not meant to be taken as literal cosmological changes. When Jesus says there'll be signs in the sun and moon and stars, probably means something about the leadership of Israel is going to start changing and there will be great changes in that regard. It's similar to the language that Isaiah used predicting the destruction of Babylon. Here's what he says in Isaiah chapter 13 in the Old Testament. God says this about the destruction of Babylon. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. In context, that's clearly about the destruction of Babylon. None of those things literally happened. The earth did not literally shake when Babylon was destroyed. The moon did not stop uh, sending its light. So clearly these are metaphors to mean there'll be great changes in the leadership of that nation. Jesus means the same thing here. He continues, on earth, nations will be in agony, bewildered by the clamor of the ocean and its waves. Now, in the Bible, the ocean is commonly used metaphor to mean the Gentiles. The ocean, and this is even true in the book of Revelation, the ocean basically means Gentile areas. 
When Jesus here says nations will be in agony, they'll be bewildered by the power of the ocean and its waves, it's probably a reference to the raw power of the Romans. The nations will be completely powerless at the mighty hand of the Roman Empire in the coming years leading up to 70 AD, and indeed that's exactly what happened. Rome became very powerful and the nations were subjugated by Rome. Jesus says, men dying of fear as they await what menaces the world. Now here Jesus does use the word world rather than land. Remember, land earlier means the area of Israel, but here he actually says world. For this reason, some people think he's now talking about the entire world of the second coming. It's much more reasonable to think of world, meaning the entire Roman Empire. That's the way that that word was used at that time. So when Jesus here says, men dying of fear as they await what menaces the world, it basically means the entire Roman Empire will sense that a great destruction is about to occur. There'll be massive upheavals all across the Roman Empire and people will be very anxious about what's going on. Jesus says, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Again, we have this language of powers of heaven. It's probably a reference to the fact that many leaders, both Jewish and Gentile, will lose their positions at this time. And that's certainly what happened. If you want to see more about this, if you have a, if you have a look at the book of Revelation, where it talks about the stars falling from heaven, it's basically the same idea that many leaders will be changed and shaken and the leadership structures will fall apart. That seems to be the idea here that Jesus is talking about. Empires will fall. Verse 27, and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Notice the word then. So Jesus says that all of these signs, the shaking of the heavens, the changing of leadership, all of that happens first. And then the sign of the son of man will come in a cloud with power and great glory. And again, notice the word they. Jesus says they will see the son of man coming. Jesus here presumes that his disciples won't see it coming. Instead, it will be they, the people in general. Here we have a strong hint that it's not a reference to the second coming. Because we believe at the second coming, all people will see that, including Christians. But here Jesus says they, which is interesting. What does this phrase mean? The son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When we hear this, we actually visualize Jesus coming down from heaven to earth. That's what we've been trained to think. That's probably not the right interpretation. This phrase coming on the cloud with power and great glory God actually does this several times in the Old Testament. This language of God coming on a cloud is used a lot in the Old Testament, and it's always used in reference to judgment, and it's always used in connection with what in the Old Testament is called the day of the Lord. So Babylon has a day of the Lord where God comes on the clouds in judgment, destroys Babylon. Israel has a couple of days of the Lord in the Old Testament when God judges Israel. So this phrase coming on the cloud probably refers to judgment. It's not literally, you won't literally be able to see Jesus coming on a cloud to earth. That's not the idea. In fact, it's probably not Jesus coming from heaven to earth at all. All it says is that Jesus will come on a cloud. That's all the phrase says. It doesn't tell us where he's coming from or where he's going. Notice that it just says he's going to come on a cloud. The son of man, the Messiah will come on a cloud. The Old Testament background for this is Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14. If you read that passage, there in Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision of the Son of Man, the Messiah, and there the Son of Man is specifically described as coming to God on clouds. It actually uses that language. The Son of Man comes to God on clouds. So the actual, the image is not of the Son of Man coming to earth. It's coming deeper into heaven to God. 
He's coming to the throne of the Father to be presented with his kingdom. I'd encourage you to study Daniel chapter 7. Have a look at that prophecy where it shows that one day the Son of Man will be presented to the Father so that the Son of Man can be given a kingdom. Jesus here says that this day is coming when the Son of Man, the Messiah, will go to the throne of the Father and be presented with the kingdom. When does this happen? Well, I think we can make a strong case theologically and biblically that Jesus is presented with his kingdom. He comes to the Father to be presented in 70 AD. In heaven, that's what's occurring theologically, and on earth, that is shown as the destruction of Jerusalem and God judging Jerusalem. So on earth, they see the coming of the Son of Man. What they see is the destruction of Jerusalem. That they would have interpreted that to be, certainly the Christians would have understood that to be, the coming of the Son of Man in judgment and great power as he destroys Jerusalem. So in heaven, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is being presented to the Father, and the Father is presenting the Son with a kingdom, and that is playing out on earth as the destruction of Jerusalem. If that seems a bit strange, have a look at the book of Revelation. There's constantly this theme of things on uh, things in heaven affecting things on earth, and they're sort of both sides of the same coin of things that are happening theologically. What does it all mean? It means that when Jerusalem is destroyed, the old covenant is destroyed too. That's the main theological thing that we're supposed to take away from why God destroys the temple. When Jerusalem is destroyed, particularly the temple, the old covenant is gone. The new covenant and the church begins, and Jesus' kingdom, the church, begins in its fullness. So once the old covenant is cleared out of the way, the New Testament church is free to thrive. That's the whole thing that God is trying to do. He's clearing away the old stuff, making way for the growth of the the church. This whole event, the 70 AD, destruction of the temple, it's all about publicly transitioning to the new kingdom of God. And when the temple is destroyed, people on earth, particularly Christians, would understand this to be the coming of the Son of Man. That is the moment at which God gives the Messiah the kingdom. It's when the Messiah and his people are vindicated. Now, after it's worth looking at what other scholars have said here. So the scholar David Palm has sort of reworked the translation here. He's looked at the Greek and he's tried to make this as clear as possible. And here's his summary of what he thinks the Greek is saying in this section. He says, Then the tribes of the land will see in the destruction of Jerusalem an unmistakable sign that the rejected Son of Man is in heaven enthroned. They will mourn. The Son of Man will come in glory to the throne of God. So that's a really interesting translation there, and it basically confirms what we've been saying here about the meaning of 70 AD and what is occurring in heaven. I know this is a very different interpretation to what many of you may have heard, particularly if you're from the Protestant world like I am, and I'd encourage you to really dig into these prophetic texts and get a good commentary to help you out as well. And I think you'll start to see that a lot of this is best understood theologically and biblically as pointing to things that occurred in 70 AD. The last thing Jesus says in verse 28 is, when these things begin to take place, stand erect, or you can translate that, look up. Hold your heads high, raise your heads. It seems to carry this idea of have confidence that God will vindicate you. Remember, he's speaking to Christians. He says, when you see these things happening, when you see the temple being destroyed, have confidence that God will vindicate you. And he says, because your liberation is near at hand. Or you can translate that, your redemption is drawing near. So when Jesus comes in 70 AD, the teaching here is that 
It will be judgment for some, for the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, but it will be redemption for the Christians. They will be vindicated. The church can then flourish without being persecuted as much. Jesus' overall message here in this speech is that things are going to be difficult. He's saying this to the Christian followers, but he tells them they must persevere. It's all leading up to the triumph of the Messianic kingdom and the passing away of the Old Covenant. Jesus has more to say in this speech. It's not finished yet, and we'll look at uh, his concluding statements in the next section in the coming days. So it's a very dense text, isn't it? There's a lot we could say about it. If you've enjoyed this exegesis, can I really encourage you to consider becoming a Patreon supporter? This is the only ministry of its kind where every day we really dive into the scripture to help you understand what it means on the literal level, in the literal sense. And if you believe the ministry is worth supporting, we can't do it without your support. So please consider becoming a Patreon supporter and the link for that is in the show notes. Let's finish today's episode by turning to the Catechism which of course is a summary of Catholic teaching. And there's a few interesting links here. So paragraph 58, this is very early in the Catechism. It talks about the covenant with Noah. And it talks here about the times of the Gentiles. Uh, And so there's an interesting discussion of when the times of the Gentiles are that this um, passage in Luke refers to. So that's paragraph 58. If we turn to paragraph 674, this is about the glorious advent of Christ. And it's talking about the second coming. Here's what it says. The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. For a hardening has come upon part of Israel in their unbelief towards Jesus. And the paragraph goes on from there to talk about the full number of the Gentiles and the fullness of Christ. And so here, remember this uh, this verse earlier in, in today's episode where we talked about the times of the Gentiles. And the Catechism here understands this to be something that's ongoing. One day, the times of the Gentiles will be finished, and the Jew, uh, many of the Jews will turn to Christianity, and then the Messiah will return. So there's a really interesting discussion there about the link between the conversion of the Jews in the future and the Messiah's return. So I'll include that in the show notes, paragraph 674. Paragraph 671 Again, this is in the same section. It says, Though already present in his church, Christ's reign is nevertheless to be fulfilled with power and great glory by the king's return to earth. This reign is still under attack by the evil powers, even though they have been defeated definitively by Christ's Passover. And then paragraph 697, this is about the Holy Spirit. It talks here about the word cloud. It says, The cloud took Jesus out of the sight of the apostles on the day of his ascension and will reveal him as son of man in glory on the day of his final coming. And there's a link here to Luke. So while it's true that the word cloud biblically is more of a metaphor for judgment, here the catechism sees that there's possibly a link here to how the cloud is used as a symbol for the Holy Spirit and also to the way the cloud takes Jesus from their sight at his ascension. So there's a whole lot of interesting things here in the Catechism. We don't have time to dive into all of these in depth today, but I'll put all of those paragraphs in the show notes. Thanks once again for your support of the ministry. We'll continue in this really interesting sermon of Jesus in the coming days.